Welcome to the Business of Design podcast. I'm Cheryl Horn, Director of Operations for Business of Design. A lot has changed at Business of Design since this episode originally aired. For the latest information and rates on events and membership at Business of Design, head to businessofdesign.com. Enjoy the show. If you're an interior design professional, you're a stager, you're a stylist, you are a landscape designer or an architect, you're in the right place. This is Business of Design, and I'm glad you're here. I want to say right off the bat, thank you so much to Kravit Inc., Kravit Fabrics. You know, they've been around since 1918, and they are a fifth-generation family-run business. That probably explains why their customer service is so good. Of course, I rely on them as my go-to resource for fabric and wall coverings and trimmings, and now even carpet and furniture, thanks to Kravit Curated. I find they really understand the pressures of my business. Their customer service is excellent. They have a vast variety of fabrics to choose from. And frankly, I love doing business with them. Thank you so much, Kravit Inc., for sponsoring our Business of Design podcast. And now on to the show. I blew it on a job recently. Yeah. I did. Not happy about that, but there you go. That's the truth. Clients asked me to design a new edition, something that I have done literally a hundred times. We did trade day. Everything was great. We worked really hard during step four, like you do. And finally, it was time for the presentation. And boy, it was a home run. It felt so good. I danced my way to the car after the presentation. The clients were thrilled. I was thrilled. The team was thrilled. We were really on fire and feeling great. So the next thing I did, uh, which is the next thing I do all the time, I hired an architect, uh, one that I use and one I love to use. She's a Business of Design member. And then in turn, she ordered a topographical survey, uh, which was a smart thing to do. And what we learned with the survey is that the area we wanted to build in was going to be problematic. It's a granite base, and it was going to be very expensive to work in that area. Instead, if we would move our addition to the opposite side of the property, and by the way, I was told not to build there, it would be easier to build and less expensive. So I'm off the hook. You know, the clients definitely dictated where I should do the addition. Uh, But at the same time, I feel lousy because for the first time ever, I realized I should have gotten that survey much earlier. Normally, I don't have that problem. I do it exactly in that order every single time. And what that tells me is even 25 years in, you can encounter a new challenge, a new issue that can throw you. Now, in the end, we're going to get that addition built for the clients, and it's going to have all the same amazing elements. And since I'm working on a flat fee contract, I'm going to be doing some additional drawing I hadn't anticipated. Um, and, And that's okay. This is the part in the episode, by the way, where you can say, oh, hey, Kimberly, don't worry. I have made some mistakes too. That's really helpful, I find, because there was a time when I thought I was the only person who was screwing up regularly. And it wasn't until I started really getting authentic when I met other designers that I realized I was not alone. And it's impossible to do this job without making mistakes. Um, And a mature business owner will um, name the mistake, own the mistake, and then put in systems to never make that mistake again. And that's exactly what we did. Now, issues are still going to come up and some challenges come up frequently. In fact, some areas of our business are just fraught with possibility for mistakes and challenges. I know that I've made many of those mistakes myself. In fact, I'm amazingly good at making mistakes, it turns out. But I know you guys have made some mistakes too, and you've been very generous about sharing uh, those mistakes and those experiences with us here, the good, the bad, and the ugly. In episode 18, Project Horror Stories, I would like to share some of my less stellar moments from my career uh, and also share some of the stories that you guys have generously shared with me. And I want you to know they will be anonymous. Don't worry if you've ever shared something with me via the forum or Facebook or on our site or face-to-face, I'm like a vault. I will never use your name. But there are some things you can learn here for sure. And me too. Welcome to the Business of Design podcast with Kimberly Selden. Brought to you by Business of Design, a coaching community for independent designers like you. 
we all know design matters, at Business of Design, we think designers matter too. Before we jump into episode 18, Project Horror Stories, I do want to share a testimonial of the week. This time it's from Brooke in Vancouver, and she says, uh, she writes, by the way, I'm on vacation, and I brought my business of design books with me for a reread. I read them years ago, but I'm loving the podcast so much, I thought I'd do a reread of the books. And I have learned so much valuable information from you. And more than anything, I am valuing my own work more. And that's given me a kick in my step again. I love how she puts that. She's got a kick in her step again. So thank you, thank you, thank you, she writes. And Brooke, thank you. Uh, You remind me too that sometimes I need to just go back to the basics and reread the books. I know it's ridiculous I wrote them, but you think I could remember everything? Oh my gosh, no. If I didn't have you guys to remind me, I'd be a hot mess. So thanks for that reminder and thanks for the testimonial. Uh, we, We love you right back. I think this episode is going to be a real reminder that the work we do is complex, intricate, and fraught with potential for disaster. That's probably part of the reason the work is so darn gratifying and the reason customers will pay us a professional rate to provide these services. So take heart as I run through these 10 categories where project horror stories tend to occur over and over again. If you find that you have made a mistake in every category, then join the club. Me too. Uh, And I definitely have made more than one mistake in every category. But I think talking about these areas uh, helps anticipate and really fend off some problems that might land in your lap otherwise. And that's why we're doing it. So there's 10 categories I'm going to talk about. Uh, The first one is negotiating fees. The second one is uninsured subtrades. The third one has to do with lapsed workman's compensation. Uh, The fourth one has to do with cash transactions. Number five is chasing people for money. Number six is going over budget. Number seven is faulty workmanship. Number eight is litigation. That's a lousy one to talk about, but there you go. Number nine is working for free, and number 10 is going it alone. So we're going to tackle these 10 areas. And as with other podcasts, if you're driving in the car, if you're busy, if you're distracted, don't worry. You don't have to take notes. Everything is available to you at businessofdesign.com under the podcasts. And this is episode 18, Project Horror Stories. The first category I'm going to talk about has to do with fees and specifically not getting in the habit of negotiating fees with potential customers. It can be really tempting, at least in my experience, to give in when a new client, a potential client, especially when they have a job you want, begins to try to negotiate your fees. Some clients can be very aggressive about that. They can really push and suggest that, you know, a lot of other professionals don't charge nearly as much as you do. And immediately my default is, I want that job. Give me that job. I'll do what it takes to get that job. And that can be really unhelpful helpful in this situation. Um, I know in the past I have rationalized that, well, if other professionals are, let's say, only charging $125 an hour, isn't $125 an hour better than no dollars an hour? Um, But the fact of the matter is my rate is fixed. And when I have it printed in my contract, when I have it written on my website, it's easier for me to hold firm in the event a client tries to negotiate that fee. The real problem with negotiating your fees down to a lower rate, it gives the client the impression that you are open to negotiating, not only about fees, but about all kinds of other things. You know, for example, between step three and step five, I know I need a minimum of four to eight weeks, depending on the size of the project, to get step four done. And if I've negotiated my fees off the top, when I turn around to a client and say, I'm going to need seven weeks in order to do a presentation, and they say, are you crazy? That's impossible. It couldn't possibly take that long. I need this in three weeks. Then suddenly I might find myself negotiating about that as well. 
Conversely, when I hold firm about my rates at the beginning of a project, I'm giving the client the impression, and a really good impression, that I'm not going to negotiate about the things that are in my contract. I'm not going to negotiate on those things that I know to be true because I've had experience working in this field. So what do you do when a client starts to negotiate your rate? It's really easy for me to say, be comfortable with losing the job because I've been doing this a long time. I have a lot of repeat and referral clients, and I always want to be aware that there are people listening who maybe are just getting started or maybe have been doing it a while but haven't yet developed the systems and procedures that are making clients so happy that they will return to them over and over again. So I never ever want to be flip about saying, don't worry about losing a job. For some of you, any job is critically important to help you pay the bills right now, so I understand. There really is a danger in negotiating your fees at the outset of a project. I mentioned this earlier, but one of the things that helped me so much was just putting my fees in writing in the contract. My contract, I refer to as time and again, my paper courage. It gives me the courage to say the things that might be a little bit difficult to say if they weren't written down. So for example, my hourly rate is $325. That used to scare the heck out of me to try to say that. Then I wrote it in my contract and now it would be ridiculous if I suddenly negotiated a new fee. There it is in writing. That's my firm's price. And you know what? I find those customers who are looking for a value in that particular snack bracket. I'm not saying everybody should be $325 an hour. I know designers who charge more than $325 an hour, but the majority of designers are charging less and sometimes a lot less. And depending on where you live and the level of experience and quality and value you provide, it's very likely you're rate needs to be higher, not lower. Never fall victim to any scenario where the client says, well, you know, other designers charge a lot less. The best response I ever heard to that was then, well, those designers obviously know what they're worth, and I know what I'm worth, and here's the value I'm going to provide to you. Here's the experience I'm going to create for you. And again, I'm going to go back to my 15 steps. If you tell clients that you have a 15-step project management strategy that allows you to deliver projects on time and on budget, don't you think you could charge more than you're charging right now? Yeah, you can. Clients will pay more because that's what they want. They've all had the experience of being disappointed by a service provider. And what you're doing is saying, look, I know this industry is chaotic, but I don't play that way. That's not how I run my projects. I run my projects in a linear, logical fashion. And by the way, the person who runs their projects in a linear, logical fashion is not a person who's going to negotiate their fees at the beginning. So Really avoid negotiating or renegotiating your fees at the beginning of a project because it will set you up for other negotiations down the line, which you don't want to have. And you'll start the project off, at least in my experience, I started those projects off already feeling a little bit put out by the client. Uh, And no one had a gun to my head. I'm the boss, I make the decisions. I wanted the project. I could visualize it in my portfolio. So I made a compromise that sold myself short and I suffered and I suffered and I suffered. Today, I don't do that. And in fact, what I find is because my hourly rate is apparent from the first phone call when they're trying to purchase that consultation, that immediately eliminates those customers who don't want the quality and value I provide. The customers who sign up for that consultation, they already know the rate and they are well aware of what they're getting into. I don't have to struggle uh, when I meet them and I review the contract when it comes to hourly fees. I one time had a customer say to me that it was really ridiculous that I charge exactly like a professional. <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, I am professional. In fact, my professional service comes fraught with a whole bunch of responsibility and even liability. When I step onto a job site, I have some legal responsibilities that I have to assume, whether I like it or not. Um, I have overhead just like any other professional service. I've got association fees and 
very heavy insurance bill that I pay every year. And by the way, I'm super grateful for that insurance because in the event something goes wrong and sometimes things do go wrong, I know that I'm covered and my clients know that I'm covered. So it's okay to charge like a professional because guess what? You are a professional. I won't hammer on that one too long because you know practically on every episode I talk about the fact that you ought to raise your fees. I talk about the fact that your fees should be on your website and I talk about the fact that your consultation fee should be a pre-qualifier to those customers you're looking for. So that's number one on the list. If you start the project off by negotiating your rates to something lower, you're setting yourself up for failure. So let's take that one off the list. Number two has to do with uninsured subtrades. Well, imagine my surprise years into doing this for a living when I discovered one of my trades who told me he had insurance actually didn't have insurance. I was gobsmacked. I remember distinctly asking my plumber, it was a plumber I was talking to, if he had insurance. Yes, he had insurance. So I felt confident that we had insurance. And then we went to work on a job and something went wrong as things do. And it was in a condominium. And you know, when you're dealing with a condominium, if something goes wrong with water on one floor, it can go down two floors, three floors, four floors. So you're not just dealing with liability in your client's unit, but you're potentially dealing with liability for or two, three, four other homeowners units as well. So this is a very big deal. I got lucky. The situation didn't lead to damage in anyone else's unit, and we were able to cover the problem and fix the problem. But it taught me a valuable lesson. I cannot trust my trades when they tell me they have insurance. So where does that leave me? Well, it leaves me with verifying their insurance with my own eyes. So today, what I know is all the trades I use over and over again, I have a physical copy of their insurance in my hands. And annually, as their insurance expires, we remind them, hey, Adam, the painter, we just got a notification that your insurance is expiring in 30 days. Can you please send us the updated insurance? And Professional trades not only will comply quickly, they appreciate that they're also working with other trades who are insured. So the first time you tackle this, yeah, it's a little bit of a bother, I'm not going to lie. You have to go to every single trade you ever work with and you have to ask them for a copy of their insurance. And they may complain a little bit because they're not used to it, but that's okay. You're going to ask them for a copy of their insurance. You're going to note the expiry date and then you're going to set notifications in your calendar that will remind you when their insurance is expiring. And why is this important? It protects you legally, but also this is a really really important, valuable service you provide to clients. What I say to the clients is, I not only have insurance myself, but I make sure that every single person who steps onto your job site also has insurance. The clients don't want to bother checking that. In fact, I've been in business 25 years. I had exactly one customer the entire time ask me to prove I had insurance. I think that's shocking. Do you know if somebody does work in your home and they don't have insurance, your insurance won't cover you? So clients are assuming a huge amount of risk and liability when they do not work with trades who are insured. And the same thing is true for you. If you are working with a painter, a plumber, electrician, it doesn't matter who doesn't have proper insurance, you are assuming huge risk and liability. This is one of those areas where you really have to protect yourself. And then brag about this to clients. Remind them how important it is to have trades who are, have insurance. Remind them that you've had trades in the past tell you they had insurance and you found out they didn't have insurance. And remind them that if people come into their home who don't have insurance, their own homeowner's insurance will be null and void. So there's a lot of value here in you tracking this information. The third category has to do with lapsed workman's compensation, kind of similar to insurance. The fact of the matter is you do want to make sure if you require a workman's compensation, and it may be called something different where you are, that you keep that up to date. It's very important. I myself uh, once had a staff member trip on the stairs at the office. It seemed like such a small thing. She ended up going for some physical therapy because she twisted her ankle and 
to be honest with you, I was very nervous. What's going to happen to me? Am I going to get sued? Uh, and the fact of the matter is my workman's compensation uh, kicked in and I was covered and I was grateful and she got the help she needed and I learned a valuable lesson about keeping stairways at work free and clear so that nobody can trip on them. And then we were able to talk about that in terms of our project job sites. How many times do you rest something on the foot of a stair because you're nearby and you're just going to be a couple of minutes? The fact is somebody could easily trip on that. So you do want to make sure you keep any workman's compensation up to date and you make sure those trades who are required to have it have it, and you have copies of that paperwork in hand. Number four has to do with taking cash. This is my dream, right? A client who says, I'm going to pay you in cash. How wonderful. The fact of the matter is, it would be lovely sometimes to avoid paying taxes uh, if you can get past the ethics and morals of that. I I personally believe that if you live in a great country, uh, you pay great taxes and that should go to take care of those who are marginalized and less fortunate and cover highways and hospitals and all those good things. So I don't actually mind paying my fair share of taxes although sometimes I think it's a little bit high, to be honest with you. Um, But a cash transaction leaves you vulnerable in so many ways. There is no going back on products that have failed you when you've paid by cash. Uh, And the same thing is true from a customer perspective. If they pay one of your trades cash and something goes wrong, there is no proof that that person did that work. So really it's a situation that is fraught with potential disaster. And I have had um, at least two conversations with designers who have been um, devastated by taking cash from clients because they had no way of proving what the transaction was. So um, as tempting as it can be, I would say it's probably something you want to avoid. And I'm just going to leave that one right there. If you, by the way, have had a story that you would like to share with the community about any one of these categories, we would sure love to hear from you. Category number five is called the money chase, and this is one I'm very familiar with and is probably the one that motivated me to create Business of Design most, and it has to do with chasing clients for money. Um, Years ago, my husband came to me and said, uh, we're going to need to borrow some money so you can pay the staff. And I looked at him and said, what on earth are you talking about? We are flat out busy. Everybody's working. We have more projects than we can handle. How could I possibly need money? Um, And the reality was, and this is a little embarrassing to admit, we had invoiced clients for their billable hours, but they just hadn't paid them. Just hadn't paid them. Um, And they hadn't paid them because we didn't really have a strict process for keeping track of those hours, noting when they were paid, and stopping work when they weren't paid, which we do have in place now. So what that looked like to me back then was I had maybe 15, 20 projects on the go. We were really, really busy. And I was working with a business coach who suggested that this was a really powerful opportunity for me to learn something and learn it for good and never have to go back and repeat the same mistakes. So her suggestion, and I think was a good one, was to phone each client independently, explain that they were in arrears on their invoices, uh, but we did it with a little bit of a twist. So for example, I phoned up Mrs. Smith and I said, hey, Mrs. Smith, I realize uh, you haven't paid your billable hours since January. It was now July. Yeah, that's the truth. It was five five months, six months down the road. And I said, uh, you know, my bad. Uh, we sent you the bills, but we do not have a system for following up on whether or not clients had paid those bills. Um, and so I'm calling you today for a couple of reasons. Number one, I, I could really appreciate your help in improving my systems and making the experience of working with my company better. Uh, that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing, I would like to find out how we can get these bills settled up. And the third thing is I would love to know more about how I can serve you better. Do you have time to have that conversation today? So Mrs. Smith may or may have not said I had you know 15 clients I had to phone at least when I did this exercise. So some clients said, sure, no problem, let's talk right now. And other clients said, no, I can't talk about it right now. And I had to make appointments to come see them. And in some cases, it took a long time to get the appointment to come see them. And those 
those fees were outstanding all those months. Between you and me, I was terrified I was never going to get paid. Um, so this was not an easy situation to be in. But here's what I learned from the clients. A, they didn't like that my invoices came with irregularity. So sometimes the invoice would arrive at the beginning of the month. Sometimes it would arrive in the middle of the month. Sometimes it would be two months. Sometimes it would be three weeks. Uh, There didn't seem to be any system. And what they told me is that that actually created anxiety for them. It made it hard for them to budget uh, and plan ahead. So, hmm, I hadn't considered it from their perspective. And you know how it happens, right? I look at an invoice and I go, oh my gosh, she's going to freak. I'm not going to send it to her today. I'm going to send it to her in a couple of weeks when things are a little bit, you know, when this other situation is better. And so then what would happen, there'd be two invoices or an extra large invoice that they had to deal with. Um, So these things piled up, one mistake after another piled up. So that was the first thing they taught me, that this irregularity in billing uh, really put them at a disadvantage and they felt they couldn't budget. The next thing they told me is that there really was no system in place for getting them to pay on time with regularity. And because I never asked again, I would send the bill and then nobody would ever follow up on the bill. They figured they could settle up at the end. So, okay, again, my bad. I realized that Our policy at that time was, if you don't pay in 30 days, we're going to charge you interest. But they didn't pay in 30 days. Nobody followed up. We never charged interest. And for those of you who have tried to charge interest, how did that go? I already know the answer because so many of you have told me, no way, no how have you ever been able to collect interest. It's an empty threat. It doesn't mean anything. So that's another thing that I learned, that I had to send the bills with regularity, and then I had to have a system for following up on the bills and making sure those bills got paid. And then the third thing, and this is really the critical thing, is I had to have some mechanism for stopping work in the event the invoices weren't paid. Because really that was my only leverage. If you have a phone and you don't pay your phone bill, your phone doesn't work anymore. They turn it off. If you don't pay your electric bill, your lights don't go on. If you don't pay your water bill, you don't have water. Well, in our business, what happens over and over and over again, a client doesn't pay a bill and we keep working, we keep working, we keep working because it's complicated. It's not as easy as just turning off the water. I've got trades who are on site and they're in the middle of things. And if I stop the project, it's going to impact them. It's going to impact the client. The client's going to be angry. And so I found myself making these decisions to keep the peace and hoping the client would pay me uh, until the problem would snowball and snowball. And finally, I had to borrow money to pay my staff. So it was a humbling exercise to phone these 15 or so clients and to hear the feedback they had about my billing practices. Um, But at the end of the day, almost every client paid me. Not every client paid me, but almost every client paid me. And I realized at that point, I was never, ever, ever going to put myself in a position where I chased clients for money again. It doesn't look professional. It doesn't feel good. And it frankly isn't part of how I want to run my business. I'm the boss. I get to make the rules. So I decided I was going to make some new rules around money. And I have not in the last 10, 12 years had to chase a client for money at all, ever, not once. And I can't tell you how good that feels. So if you're not following our 15-step process and collecting everything up front, really there's a better way jump on board as soon as you can, and no more chasing clients for money. The next area in Project Horror Stories has to do with being over budget. And in fact, really, how does one determine a budget? If you ask your client at the beginning of the project what the budget is, chances are they won't know. That's one way it goes. Another way that it goes is they say, oh, well, the budget is $30,000, but we want to redo the kitchen. We want to redo the two bathrooms. We want to change the roof. We want uh, uh, new carpeting throughout, et cetera, et cetera. And you know darn well that that $30,000 isn't going to stretch. So the first problem we have in keeping projects on budget is developing a system to get to a budget that everybody can agree on. And I'll tell you one thing I know 100% sure. You cannot state a budget with 
any efficiency or effectiveness the very first time you meet the client. You can't do it. I'm not an electrician. I'm not a plumber. I'm not a contractor. I'm not a structural engineer. I don't know what all of the things I need to price will cost, and I can't guess. Clients are always saying that, aren't they? Don't they say, just take your best guess. We won't hold you to it. Experience has shown me over and over again that in fact they do hold you to it and it's a really bad idea. So the first thing you need is a system for determining a budget and you need to set the very clear expectation that you won't have the budget at the first meeting. You can't possibly have the budget at the first meeting. When it comes to conversations with budget, you have to be crystal clear with clients that just because you discuss the numbers, that does not mean you're guaranteeing a budget. So for example, I recently uh, was on a job site and we are building, uh, renovating a farmhouse for clients. It's a really fun project. And I mentioned another renovating project where the budget was $750,000. And the client said, oh, no, 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 that's too high. And after that conversation, they referenced that number several times. And I had to keep reminding them, I was not telling you what your budget is. I was having a conversation about what budget we came to for another project as a way of illustrating to you that the budget you want to spend is going to be too small to do everything you want to do. But I don't know what your budget's going to be. And in fact, I will not know what your budget's going to be until step five. At step five, I'll present everything, including pricing. And at that point, you'll tell me what the budget's going to be. We could do everything I presented, and then we'll know what the budget is. We could do half of what I presented, and now we know what the budget is. We could break it into three phases, and so I know what the budget is over three phases. But I can't know that information until step five. When I meet a new client, and one of the things that really stood in the way of me getting my business under control at an early age in this game was the fact that my brain immediately goes to, A, this is going to be super fun. I'm so excited to renovate this condo, house, townhouse, vacation property, whatever it is. Uh, B, it's going to look great in a magazine. I, my head always goes there. Oh my gosh, this is going to be so great. We're going to photograph it. I'm going to win some fancy award that I'm going to hang on my wall. Like I'm really getting ahead of myself here. What is the client thinking when they first meet you? It isn't, wow, I want this to end up in a magazine. It's not even probably, gee, I hope this looks beautiful, because the fact of the matter is they assume it's going to look beautiful because this is your job and they saw your website and they assume you're going to be able to do that. What the client is really thinking is how much is this going to cost and how long is it going to take? Those are the two most important things a client is thinking. So when it comes to any conversation about budget, it's really important that you pay a lot of attention and you keep pushing back when clients try to get you to agree to something. So for example, I've had clients in the past say something like, yeah, yeah, I know you said it wasn't enough, but really we're going to try to keep it to 400000 right, Kimberly? And what I need to do right then is not joke back and not go, ha, 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 yeah, I'm your dreaming. But what I need to do right then is said, no, I want to be really clear that we have not agreed to any budget. And again, I'm going to go through our process. I'm going to go through all of step four. I'm going to present at step five. And then you're going to tell me what the budget is. Even though that makes me a bit of a killjoy, in those two areas, budget and timing, I know clients don't want to joke. So don't joke. Be very, very serious about those two areas. The next category has to do with those unfortunate times when somebody has been hired and they've done poor quality work. It happens, right? Sometimes you have a trade that you've worked with many times and they've been wonderful, but suddenly they just really, really messed up. It's lousy when it happens. Or it's the first time you've worked with a trade. Maybe the trades aren't even running through your company. For so many people, they don't want to put any of the trades through their company because they're afraid of the liability. And I have some very strong opinions about why that is a little bit short-sighted and how you can make a lot of money by working directly with your trades. But the fact of the matter is, even if it's not your trade and it's someone else's trade and you're on site and you're supervising and project managing, even if you're not being paid for those things... If you're having conversations with trades, it can easily be interpreted that you are managing those trades, whether or not you're making any money. So do be careful about that. 
But when one of those trades makes a mistake, boy, it can certainly shake things up. I have found over the years that the very best thing I can do is be totally honest with clients when that happens. So for example, we had a situation where we were putting in heated floors in a bathroom and then the tile was going on top. So we had the heated floors uh, installed, the electrician came, everything was great. The tile went on top, that looked beautiful. We went to turn the heated floor on to test them out, and guess what? It didn't work. Somehow, the installer, um, the electrician, was an apprentice of the electrician we used all the time, had made a simple mistake. And the result was we had to rip out the installed tiles, um, fix the electrical problem at the source, and then reinstall tiles. A very, very expensive mistake. And forget about the money for a minute and the time. It just made us look bad. We looked bad. So what did I learn from that? I learned, A, that you always test the floor before you put the tiles down. And in fact, the electrician assured us that the floor had been tested and it was working. So that may be true. I don't know. Uh, but number two, make clients aware of the fact that sometimes these things happen. And if a client hears other horror stories, if you could share with them other things that have happened on job sites that were challenging, that you had to overcome, and how you solve those problems, you give them confidence that you've been doing this a while, that you have the experience and integrity that they are looking for to manage their job. So in this case, we worked together with the electrician to solve this problem financially. The tiles had to be ripped up. New tiles had to be ordered. It was not the client's fault. It was truly, um, it was either the electrician's fault because they didn't test the floor before time, or it was our fault because we didn't uh, ask to see that the floor was working before the tiles were installed. So in that case, I think we shared the costs with the electrician, but the tiler got paid to put the floor back again because it wasn't his fault. And it really would wear your trades out if you went back to them every time there was a mistake and said, could you do it for free? So in that case, he didn't make any mistakes. He did the tile correctly the first time. He had to come back and rip out the tile and put down new tile once it arrived. So we paid him in full for all of that work. And he was very grateful. I remember that situation specifically, him commenting that he was very grateful I didn't come to him and ask him to contribute to making it right. Because often the designers, he said, will do that. They'll look to everybody to kind of pay for mistakes, no matter who made the mistake. And it can make it very difficult to work with them. When it comes to anything to do with water or electricity, you do want to make sure you're well aware of what the law is in your city, in your town, in your region, in your province, in your state, in your country. Make sure you know that you are compliant. So for example, um, the majority of our work happens in Toronto, and I know in the province of Ontario, you must have a licensed electrical contractor. It's not good enough to be an electrician. They actually have to fall under this body in order for that work to be legally compliant. And if I don't know that, and I hire someone who says he's an electrician, but is not part of that body for clients, I am breaking the law. And in the event something goes wrong, again, I'm going to have huge problems because my insurance is not going to help cover me. The next category is a lousy category. And a lot more people will find themselves in this category than you would imagine, and that has to do with litigation. I coach um, interior design professionals on a regular basis, and frequently my one-hour coaching is used for an emergency situation where someone finds themselves on the brink of litigation or facing litigation. So I've had more than my fair share experience talking to design professionals when their projects hit a critical point where people are getting lawyers. And it's really, really painful to watch. So the first thing I want to tell you is if you have ever been involved in a lawsuit or you have been threatened with a lawsuit, I want you to know that you're not alone. That happens a lot. 
Um, when people's tempers flare, sometimes that's the very first thing they go to, and that's okay. But it's important if you're going to be in this business, it's not a game. It is a professional business. You want to make sure your contract covers you in the event of litigation. And I think even more importantly, you want your contract to provide some disincentive to litigation. In other words, make it very difficult to come after you when there is a problem. And if you've taken my contract courses, we talk about that quite a bit. The disincentive to litigation is extremely important. Um, I've had a couple experiences with litigation, uh, funny enough, um, I mean, who talks about this? How embarrassing. I hope clients aren't listening. But I have had two experiences with litigation. Uh, One, I took a client to small claims court. And I did it, I'll tell you the truth, I did it because, um, A, I was 100% sure I was right and she was wrong. It was zero doubt. I had him writing proof that what she was saying wasn't true. And I was 100% positive uh, it would go in my favor. But the second thing is, I really wanted the experience so I could come back and share it with all of you. Um, So, and it was a really worthwhile experience. And in fact, from that experience where I was awarded the full judgment, which was great, and it was just a little small claim saying, I learned something valuable from the judge who um, sat in on our case. And that was to keep my contract written in the plainest, simplest language possible. He said, in the event a client doesn't understand what's in my contract, uh, the judge would have to rule in the client's favor. And at that time, I had a little bit of legalese in my contract. So the judge actually gave me some examples of how to remove the legalese and make it crystal clear, um, which was really lovely. I think he saw that this was a completely frivolous, nonsensical um, claim and um, was happy to award the sum to me and uh, really wanted to drive his point home by giving me some solid business advice. So that was an awesome experience. I don't recommend going to small claims court, by the way, unless you're 100% sure you're going to win or 80% sure you're going to win because it can be very expensive, uh, et cetera. So the second thing was really weird. Um, I had someone take me to small claims court, and it was uh, two years and two months after we finished a project, and it was one of the strangest projects we'd ever done. And in fact, I wrote about the project in volume two, I think volume two. Uh, a chapter begins with building a home without a plan is not a good idea, and building your business without a plan is not a good idea. You remember that story? So this particular couple couple hired me, and they were well under construction already. And before I even walked into the house, I saw that there were some real problems. Uh, above the front door was a beautiful round window, but it wasn't actually quite above the front door. It was kind of off to the side. So right away, I'm like, what? on earth is going on. So I come into the project and we find, yep, the contractor's building, but there's no plan. So of course things are going wrong. So we were completely helpful to these clients and um, had a weird feeling about one of the uh, clients from the get-go. All of us did. We all felt uncomfortable about this particular person in the relationship. And the other person in the relationship was awesome. So anyway, we we did the work to the best of our ability. Um, Uh, The clients were very, very happy, didn't hear another word about it. Two years and two months later, I get this little note um, from the client, the one that was difficult, asking for a full refund because they didn't get the value out of our services. So I was like, what on earth are you talking about? And I went back to all of our notes and I went back to all the emails. My God, we love you the best. Thank you so much. I was able to point out 10 different emails where they would you know, just gush about how great we were. And I thought on principle, I'm not going to give in. I'm just going to say... No, so I, I, you know, wrote a very polite letter and just said, "No, I think we did provide the value, and I'm sorry you feel that way, and we wish you well." So sure enough, I got a, a legal notice to appear, and it was a small claims um, thing again. wasn't wasn't very big. And I thought, I'm, I'm just going to go. I'm not going to pay. And again, it was extremely illuminating to learn about the process from that side of the table. Um, I did win the settlement. Uh, it was thrown out. It was frivolous. I had so much documentation where the client had directed us to do something, and then we did it. And then the client said, that was terrific. Thank you so much. Um, so that was part of why I won. The other part of why I won is because the um, lawsuit or the small claims court case was brought against me two years and two months 
after the project wrapped up, and the deadline was two years. So it got thrown away on a technicality anyway. And the funny thing about that is one of the clients was a lawyer, and the one that was easy to get along with was a lawyer, and fully knew that by launching that two years and two months uh, after the fact, I would be free and clear. So I think that particular partner knew 100% that this was frivolous and not right. And um, anyway, I share that with you because when it happens to you, when it happened to me, I feel so much shame suddenly, like, what have I done to bring this about? But the fact of the matter is we do kind of live in a litigious society. So in the event your project is crescendoing toward um, litigation, someone's threatening litigation, I strongly recommend you pick up the phone. I mean, I'm so happy to talk you through this uh, with my experience. I am not a lawyer at the point. You, You know, you definitely may need a lawyer and a good lawyer is a wonderful, wonderful thing to have. And I've been very lucky. I just stumbled onto a lovely person who's helped me uh, the two times that I needed it. And uh, that's that's great. So I don't give legal advice, but I certainly can give advice about trying to negotiate yourself away from from that. And, and I strongly recommend getting your contract in shape so litigation is a last resort, not a first resort. So there you go. That's enough about that. Yuck. Yucky topic. The next category is a real horror story. And that's why you find yourself working for free. Now that can be um, where you started the project and your rate was too low and you knew it and you did it anyway. And to add insult to injury, you don't log all your hours and you don't bill for all your hours. So you're essentially working for free. In fact, if you're paying your association fees and your insurance fees and your computer and your overhead and all of that, you could actually be working for free if you're charging too little. That's the thing I kind of didn't realize when I started out. My costs you know, really need to be covered uh, generously by the money I'm bringing in. And if that's not happening, you're not only working for free sometimes, it's actually costing you money to do this job. And that, that's a horrible thing. Um, so that's one part of it. And then the other part of it, of course, is when you do a flat fee contract and you haven't charged enough and then you really find yourself in indentured servitude and you can't get out of it and you're working, 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 and there doesn't seem to be an end to it. Then you are really working for free. And in fact, I would say you're not working for free, but it's actually costing you money to do this work. So never forget that the work we do is complex. It's not linear. The scope can change in a heartbeat. That can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your um, perspective. Uh, And if you're not prepared for all of those things, you can find yourself working for free. And then the bad thing about that is you begin to get resentful. You begin to try to take it out on your clients, subconsciously even, maybe if not consciously. And you may do what I have seen other designers do in the past, which is try to get away with making up money in some other way. So you take a hefty kickback from somebody. The client doesn't know uh, that the chairs only cost this much money, so you might as well make it up by charging more. Or we were on a job site once where the contractor charged um, 100% markup on the bins for removal. It's such a small thing, right? They had to have these bins in their driveway because we were doing some demolition work before renovation. And in this case, it was a small town. The clients actually knew the company that rented the bins and mentioned the price of the bins. And that the, the owner of the company that rented the bins said, oh, wow, no, he's, he's marking them up 100%. And so the clients came to me and said, whoa, what's happening here? So we had to work through that. So don't think there's ever a surefire way where you can make up money that you haven't charged at the outset at the back end. There's a million ways you can get caught when you do something like that, and it isn't worth it. I had to have a business model that would allow me to sleep at night, that I would be assured that I am not going to get sued, that I am going to be covered in the event something goes wrong, and that I could run a transparent business. So I could look clients in the eye when they say to me, what's the markup on this item? I could tell them the truth. And if they demanded to see an original invoice, no problem. Here's the original invoice. That's the kind of business I want to run. And I think that's probably the kind of business you want to run too. So we're going to talk 
uh, every week in the podcast and certainly in the hundreds of courses that we have at businessofdesign.com, we're going to talk about the specifics that allow us to run a transparent business that allow us to be profitable and to thrive, to satisfy clients, to get repeat and referral business, and to feel really great about the decision you've made to be in this industry. If you're not feeling great about the decision you've made to be in this industry, that's okay. We can help you get there. And that brings me to the last one, which is going it alone. You are no longer alone. You have found a home here. I'm sure of it. Our community is vast. You can find them on Business of Design. You can find them on our Facebook page. You can find them at our webinars. And this is what we all need to do. We all have association and groups we belong to. We all want to go back into those groups and start telling the truth. Start talking about the complexity of the work, the challenges that we're facing, the solutions we've come up with. Nobody loses by sharing a solution with somebody else. You're not going to suddenly go out and be my competition and take away work from me. You being better at your job means that clients and consumers are getting educated about what it really takes to be a professional interior design practice. Whether you're a stager, a stylist, a landscape architect, it doesn't matter, an architect, um, it's all the same, right? It's all the same. We all want to provide tremendous service and value to our customers. And the more consumers are educated uh, about the difference between somebody who's doing it as a hobby and somebody who's doing it as a professional, the more we all stand to benefit. So feel free to look behind you and find those designers who are newer to the industry, who are struggling. Um, You might be meeting them at association meetings and they might say, everything is great, but you just have a feeling maybe everything isn't great. So share a story about something that's going on with you and then they'll open up as well. Use the time you have face-to-face with other designers to be real and talk about the real challenges. And a lot of you listening are probably thinking, you know, I'm really good at this part of the job. I'm amazing at project management, or I'm amazing at styling. We would love to hear from you, and we are actively looking for new guests for the podcast. Um, so please reach out to us if you have a story idea and you'd like to be interviewed on the podcast. I would love to learn from you. At Business of Design, We know it takes more than hard work and talent to successfully run a professional design firm. There are proven business strategies that can solve your immediate business challenges and transform your life. Don't try to do this alone. Join today and you'll have access to more than 100 video courses, plus access to Kimberly Selden as your mentor and guide. Unlike coaching, which can take years to produce tangible results, BOD is a fast track to immediate results for independent interior designers, decorators, architects, stagers, and landscapers just like you. Monthly membership is only $67.50. Annual members save two months and have access to Kimberly's contracts. What are you waiting for? Together, we will achieve extraordinary results. Start today. <laughs>